Hi, this is Jason Smith, taking a moment before we begin to let you know that this episode of Digital Jung will be the last one of 2022. I'll be taking a short break through the last couple of weeks of December and will return with new episodes starting on January 5th, 2023. This is also a good time for me to express my gratitude to you for tuning into this podcast and for the notes of support and encouragement that I've received from so many of you. Thank you. I wish you all the best for this holiday season and for the coming year and beyond. Thanks for listening, and take good care. Welcome to Digital Jung, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. I'm Jason Smith, Jungian analyst and your host for this show. And in this episode, I discuss how times of struggle and even suffering can open us up to an experience that Jung calls an affirmation of things as they are. It's the human soul. That's the very treasure. Something else, too, came to me from my illness. I might formulate it as an affirmation of things as they are, an unconditional yes to that which is, without subjective protests, acceptance of the conditions of existence as I see them and understand them, acceptance of my own nature as I happen to be. In 1944, at the age of 69, Carl Jung suffered a heart attack that brought him to the brink of death. The situation was so dire that his wife, Emma, moved into the hospital and slept at his bedside. He was not expected to live. For three weeks, writes the biographer Frank McGlynn, Jung hovered at death's door. Even in his delirious state, Jung himself had an awareness of the nearness of his own death. I had reached the outermost limit, he says in Memories, Dreams, Reflections, and do not know whether I was in a dream or an ecstasy. This last statement refers to a series of visionary experiences that he underwent during this extraordinary time. 
I won't describe Jung's visions here, except to say that it is clear from his depictions of these inner events that they were vivid, that they were powerful, and that they constituted what can only be called a spiritual and psychological ordeal. In other words, they were experiences that he went through. They were not merely images that he observed from some intellectual or aesthetic distance, but they involved him at the deepest level of his being. He writes of feeling that everything was being sloughed away. All that he had been and done and thought on earth was being stripped from him, and it was painful. And this was followed later by blissful experiences of incredible beauty, scenes which he describes as being filled with the energy of divine creation, a sense of the miraculous union of past, present, and future held together in a non-temporal wholeness. It's hard, I think, for us to know what to make of such experiences. Clearly, Jung took them seriously. But Jung had an understanding of the psyche that, for the most part, we tend to lack today. It was an understanding born of experience, of a direct relationship with his own unconscious. The reality of the psyche was not simply a theoretical construct for Jung. It was a living truth. He knew, for instance, that we are only affected by those things to which we are open. Only the person who makes themselves, so to speak, susceptible to transformation will be transformed. Only when we participate with all of our being, body, mind, and soul, in the life of the psyche, do we come to know the aliveness of the psyche. And this takes something like a poetic spirit, a more than rational attitude that can allow at least as much of a place for the imagination as for the intellect, for the heart as for the head. The inner life, this relationship to the psyche, is essential for the experience of meaning. And there's a definition of meaning that I like very much. It comes from the Jungian analyst Edward Edinger, who states simply that it is a psychological state that can affirm life. The meaningful, he suggests, does not have to do with abstract knowledge. Rather, it is experienced at those times when we are deeply moved, through events that have the power to relate us organically to life as a whole. Very often, however, these events are initiated by times of extremity times of illness, of loss, and of the approach of death. 
Such times have the effect of softening up the hard crust of our personality so that we become more permeable to a direct experience of life and of our own psyches. Even just a step in the direction of the outermost limit of life, even if we are not hovering at death's door as Jung was, brings a consciousness of our mortality. And this can have the effect of a thinning of the veil between our everyday existence and that deeper reality that is usually obscured from our sight. This may not take the form of the kinds of visionary experiences that Jung speaks of, but nevertheless, it can alter our way of being in the world if we don't defend ourselves from its effects. In Jung's case, as we heard in the opening quote, he emerged from his illness with a heightened capacity for the affirmation of life, an unconditional yes to that which is. In reading his account of this time in his life, I'm struck by what seems to me to be the solidity of what I can only call Jung's spiritual being. And this comes through, for example, in the following passage. It was only after the illness that I understood how important it is to affirm one's own destiny. In this way, we forge an ego that does not break down when incomprehensible things happen. An ego that endures, that endures the truth, and that is capable of coping with the world and with fate. Then, to experience defeat is also to experience victory. Nothing is disturbed, neither inwardly nor outwardly, for one's own continuity has withstood the current of life and of time. But that can come to pass only when one does not meddle inquisitively with the workings of fate. This is an extraordinary paragraph. Jung's statement, nothing is disturbed, resonates with the same energy, the same certainty, and the same essential message of another and more well-known statement written almost 600 years earlier. This older statement, too, was the product of an encounter with death, and it still rings with a profound power even today. I'm speaking of the famous words of the English mystic Julian of Norwich. All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. Most of the time, of course, caught up as we are, in the moment-to-moment -moment entanglements of our lives, we find it hard enough to affirm the next hour, let alone all things as they are. There are just so many things in our lives we don't want, right? 
obligations, debts, disagreements, the tedium of domestic life, the constant worry about our kids or our elderly parents or our lovers or lack of lovers. We're anxious about the state of the world. We're horrified by the human capacity for inhumanity. We're depressed at the emptiness of our consumer-driven society. And we're haunted by those ever-present specters, illness, loss, and death. How much of this, we might well wonder, even deserves our yes. And yet, and yet, and yet there are moments, right? Moments that cut through everything. Moments that blow out the constant chatter in our heads. Moments that wrench our attention away from the cramped surfaces of life and redirect it to a broader, more spacious depth. Often, these are difficult moments, even devastating ones. But as we just heard, sometimes the nearness of death has the paradoxical effect of generating more life. Julian of Norwich and Carl Jung are both witnesses to this possibility. One of Jung's teachings is that meaning makes suffering endurable, but it's also true that sometimes suffering is a doorway into the experience of meaning. It can be a gate, says the poet Marie Howe, into an embrace of our own lives. And this is beautifully expressed in her poem, The Gate, which I want to share with you now. And it goes like this. I had no idea that the gate I would step through to finally enter this world would be the space my brother's body made. He was a little taller than me, a young man, but grown, himself by then, done at twenty-eight, having folded every sheet, rinsed every glass he would ever rinse under the cold and running water. This is what you have been waiting for, he used to say to me. And I'd say, what? And he'd say, this, holding up my cheese and mustard sandwich. And I'd say, what? And he'd say, this, sort of looking around. This is what you've been waiting for. What if that were true? What if all that we had been waiting for was already right here? That we just had to learn how to see it properly, how to affirm our own lives, even love them, say yes to them. I'm not talking about passive resignation, 
a kind of this is as good as it gets mentality. And I'm certainly not talking about looking on the bright side, a willful denial of struggle and suffering, which is ultimately just a denial of life itself. I'm talking about something much more challenging. I'm talking about facing into life as it presents itself to us. I'm talking about being here fully and fully awake. It was only after my illness that I understood how important it is to affirm one's own destiny, wrote Jung. I'm talking about opening to the possibility of just such an affirmation. In her poem, Marie Howe speaks of finally entering this world, which she makes clear comes out of her experience of her brother's death. I had no idea that the gate I would step through to finally enter this world would be the space my brother's body made. Death here becomes an occasion for a heightened engagement with life. Loss, a baptism into a greater love. There's an extraordinary letter written by the poet Rilke, who states that he sees death as a friend. And this is not meant in any morbid way, right? It's not the expression of someone longing to be rid of the pain of existence. Rather, in facing the reality of death, he implies, we are brought to an awareness of eternity, of the mysterious more that encompasses our lives. Only because we exclude death when it suddenly enters our thoughts, he writes, has it become more and more of a stranger to us. And because we have kept it a stranger, it has become our enemy. In Rilke's view, it's necessary to have a kind of intimacy with death if we're going to be able, he says, to most passionately, most vehemently assent to being here, to living and working on earth, to nature, to love. From the middle of life onward, echoes Jung, only he remains vitally alive who is ready to die with life. To live and to die, in other words, make one whole, like figure and ground. And the fear of one necessarily means the fear of the other. The life that emerges through the gate of death in Howe's poem, is not a compensation for the loss of her brother. It doesn't take the form of an attitude of squeezing every drop out of life, for instance, or putting together a bucket list of amazing things to do before I die. It's not to great achievements that she is driven. Those are fine in their own way, but they can just as easily be expressions of the denial of death as they can an affirmation of life. No, 
It's a step into the ordinary, into the everyday, the mundane. It's an affirmation of all things, of folding sheets and rinsing glasses and making and eating cheese and mustard sandwiches. It's as if in that poem her brother's absence becomes a presence that somehow makes things more real, more meaningful. It's as if such a loss has a way of making a sacrament of even the most commonplace events. And this, ultimately, is the takeaway. The experience of suffering leads us into the religious dimension of life. And at the same time, it requires of us a religious attitude with which we can meet and endure our suffering. Now, I've said before on this podcast that when I talk about religion, I don't necessarily mean a particular tradition with its dogmas and beliefs. For Jung, the word religion refers to the attitude that we take to what he calls the irrational facts of experience and what others have called the ineffable or the transcendent. Religion as an attitude is a means of experiencing the full range of living. It is a way of exposing ourselves to the existential realities of human life. And in this, it can be compared to a statement once given by the great film director Akira Kurosawa about art. To be an artist, he's reported to have said, means never to avert your eyes. A religious attitude, then, means opening our eyes and ourselves to more, letting more life in, letting it touch us, move us, and change us. Tears, sorrow, pain, and loss are bitter, and they cut deep. But if we're able to allow experiences such as these to open us up and not shut us down, if we can find a way to say yes even to these unwelcome visitors, we may find they bring with them a greater capacity for meaning, a greater capacity, that is, to affirm life, this life, as it happens to be. And if we are lucky, perhaps every once in a while it will happen that we will be able to touch those depths of life where we too can say with Julian of Norwich, all shall be well, and all shall be well and all manner of thing shall be well. I'll be back in just a minute with this week's parting words. You'll find a list of all the sources used in this week's episode in the show notes. 
You'll also find links to connect with me on social media, as well as for my book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, available from Chiron Publications. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the production of this show. You can do so for as little as the cost of a cup of coffee at Buy Me a Coffee. You'll even find some extras for this show posted there from time to time. Just hit the Support the Show link in the show notes. Thank you very much. Now here are this week's parting words. This week I want to draw from a beautiful little book called The Abandonment to Divine Providence by Jean-Pierre de Cossade. This little book is a classic of Christian mysticism, and it deals with a spirituality that is based on what he calls the sacrament of the present moment. It's a declaration, ultimately, that the divine dwells in all things and in every moment. It's Jung's affirmation of things as they are, expressed through the language of religion. So here's a little quote from that book. The treasure is everywhere. It is offered to us all the time and wherever we are. All creatures, friends, or foes pour it out in abundance, and it flows through every fiber of our body and soul until it reaches the very core of our being. If we open our mouths, they will be filled. God's activity runs through the universe. It wells up and around and penetrates every created being. Where they are, There it is also. It goes ahead of them, it is with them, and it follows them. All they have to do is let its waves sweep them onwards. Until next time.